This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Slice of Life by Vladimir Nabokov, translated from the 1925 Russian text by Dmitry Nabokov in collaboration with the author, which was published in The New Yorker in April of 1976. For the first time, he sat on my couch and shed cigarette ashes on my polychrome cushions. Yet the event, which would once have given me divine pleasure, now did not gladden me one bit. The story was chosen by Jonas Hassan Kemiri, a Swedish fiction writer and playwright whose novels include The Family Clause and Everything I Don't Remember. Hi, Jonas. Welcome. Thank you. So can you tell me what your what your first connection with Nabokov was, as he had a big influence on you? I discovered him when I was in my early 20s. Um, for a long time, I had been writing with a kind of shame because I enjoyed it so much. I just understood that as a writer, you kind of should not love it, or you should <laughs> focus a lot on how hard it is and how difficult it is. And of course, it's tricky to write beautiful sentences. Of course, it's tricky to kind of create a nuanced character. But when I discovered Nabokov, what I felt was that there was a certain kind of joy in the sentence making that I could relate to. Um, it just felt like he had a blast. <laughs> and, and I was really infatuated by that joy. I think I was, as a young writer, I kept thinking that life was getting in the way of writing. I had mm -hmm. to kind of remove things in order to write. I had to remove, kind of focus on food, <laughs> remove <laughs> sleep, remove everything. And then I would get to the kind of, like the perfect essence of writing. And, and um, there was something about his ability to see the weirdness of the small details of life and bring them up and investigate them that not only made me, I think, hopefully into a better writer, but also into a better person, I think. There was something about his his gaze on these details. I found that really, really uh, impressive. Um, the first um, novel I wrote of Nabokov was, of course, Lolita. And mm -hmm. I remember them just meeting with the first sentences, you know, the famous moment where we meet her name and then Humber kind of, he explains how we as readers or speakers say the word Lolita. So, so he would go through what the tongue does yeah. inside of our mouths. And I remember that moment of like, oh, so first he's in my head and he's in my ears, right? Because we hear the voices so clear in our, in our heads. But he's also in my He's in my freaking mouth. <laughs> he, <laughs> he knows, knows what, what I'm doing what with your my tongue. tongue. Is doing. Yeah. yeah, and that is a very, I mean, it's it says so much about Humbert Humbert. And like that's, he wants to, I'm not sure if he wants to be in my mouth particularly, but like like he, he has that manipulative way of kind of sneaking his way in. And he does that, I think is like maybe third sentence. So I think that that's also an aspect of his writing that I find super impressive. Um, the way that he can use voice and then um, create these characters who are oftentimes lying to us and kind of mm -hmm. performing themselves in front of us, but it very rarely feels manipulative. I find that he really does it in a way that, that implicates the reader, makes the reader part of what's happening, so you can't really judge. Yes, yeah. Um, and there is this kind of um, leaning in effect where you kind of 
The moment we meet Humbert, we realize that we need to take some distance, but he's already inside of us in a way. Um, yeah. He was in my mouth, he was in my ears, but also that this, he, he changed the way I saw the world. Um, also as a younger writer, I think that just the fact that he, the experimentation he did in the novels, I found that super impressive. Like, could you start the novel with a poem, like a 999 line poem? <laughs> I'm not sure you can or if it's a good idea, but he does it. And just that thing, when you encounter a writer, and I have a certain number of those writers, where all of a sudden you feel that they kind of raise the ceiling of what is possible. Um, mm -hmm. Is this allowed? I remember that feeling of yeah. reading him and going like, can you do this? Yeah. <laughs> and did you know this story before or did you come across it when looking for something to read? Yeah. No, I hadn't read this um, particular story before. It was hard to choose. Like There are a number of beautiful ones in the archives. I think that some of the things that we talked about now, like this attention to detail, meeting a character who seems to have a hard time being herself in life and then tries to in a way, perform herself in front of us. I think that that tension is in this story. So that was something that I maybe want to read it. And and also, there's a genuine kind of darkness and and, and loss in this story. And that's something that Nabokov does beautifully throughout yeah. his in all of his writing. I think. I mean, the story specifies that it was translated from a 1925 version of the Russian text, though I think it wasn't published in Russian until 1935. Um, and in 1925, Nabokov would have been 25 or 26, very young, and he would have been like his characters, a Russian emigre living in Berlin. Do you think it feels like early Nabokov, not yet fully realized, or do you think he was already all there? I mean, I think a lot of the elements are already there. I think one of the things that he captured beautifully is this, this feeling of being stuck in life. We meet these characters who are all kind of, they have this emigre existence in Berlin and kind of an unsure future and their life are kind of put on pause. And I think that that seems to be one of the deeper sadnesses of the story. Um, I mean, if you've on some level lost everything, <laughs> then another loss might be even more painful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we, in a weird way, start to care for the main character here, Maria, even though she gives us a number of reasons why we in a way, should dislike her. But then there is this um, feeling that she's caught in time and doesn't see a way out that makes us care for her more, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Jonas Hassan Kemiri reading A Slice of Life by Vladimir Nabokov, translated from the Russian by Dmitry Nabokov in collaboration with the author. A Slice of Life In the next room, Pavel Romanovich was roaring with laughter as he related how his wife had left him. I couldn't endure the sound of that horrible hilarity. And without even consulting my mirror, just as I was in the rumpled dress of a slatternly after-lunch siesta, and no doubt still bearing the pillow's imprint on my cheek, I made for the next room, the dining room of my landlord, and came upon the following scene. My landlord, a person called Plekhanov, 
totally unrelated to the socialist philosopher, sat listening with an air of uh, encouragement, all the time filling the tubes of Russian cigarettes by means of a tobacco injector, while Pavel Romanovich kept walking around the table, his face a regular nightmare, its pallor seeming to spread to his otherwise wholesome-looking, close-shaven head. A very Russian kind of cleanliness, habitually making one think of neat engineer troops, but at the present moment reminded me of something evil, something as frightening as a convict's skull. He had come, actually, looking for my brother, who had just gone. But this did not really matter to him. His grief had to speak, and so he found a ready listener in this rather unattractive person whom he hardly knew. He laughed, but his eyes did not participate in his guffaws. As he talked of his wife's collecting things all over their flat, of her taking away by some oversight his favorite eyeglasses, of the fact that all her relatives were in the know ahead of him, of his wondering, yes, here's a nice point, he went on, now addressing directly Plekhanov, a God-fearing widower, for his speech until then had been more or less a harangue in sheer space. A nice, interesting point. How will it be in the hereafter? Will she cohabit there with me or with that swine? Let's go to my room, I said in my most crystalline tone of voice. And only then did he notice my presence. I had stood leaning forlornly against the corner of the dark sideboard, with which my diminutive figure in its black dress seemed to fuse. Yes, I wear mourning for everybody, for everything, for my own self, for Russia, for the fetuses scraped out of me. He and I passed into the tiny room I rented. It could scarcely accommodate a rather absurdly wide couch covered in silk, and next to it a little low table bearing a lamp whose base was a veritable bomb of thick glass filled with water. And in this atmosphere of my private coziness, Pavel Romanovich became at once a different man. He sat down in silence, rubbing his inflamed eyes. I curled up beside him, patted the cushions around us, and lapsed into thought. Cheek propped feminine thought as I considered him, his turquoise head, his big strong shoulders, which a military tunic would have suited so much better than that double-breasted jacket. I gazed at him and marveled that I could have been swept off my feet by this short, stocky fellow with insignificant features, except for the teeth. Oh my, what fine teeth! Yet I was crazy about him barely two years before, at the beginning of emigre life in Berlin, when he was only just planning to marry his goddess. And how very crazy I was, how I wept because of him, how haunted my dreams were by that slender chainlet of steel around his hairy wrist. He fished out of his hip pocket his massive battlefield, as he termed it, cigarette case. Despondently nodding his head, he tapped the tube end of his Russian cigarette against the lid of the case several more times than usual. 
Yes, Maria Vasilevna, he said at last through his teeth as he lit up, raising high his triangular eyebrows. Yes, nobody could have foreseen such a thing. I had faith in that woman, absolute faith. After his recent fit of sustained loquacity, everything seemed uncannily quiet. One heard the rain beating against the windowsill, the clicking of Plekhanov's tobacco injector in the next room, the whimpering of a neurotic old dog locked up in my brother's room across the corridor. I don't know why, either because the weather was so very gray or perhaps because the kind of misfortune that had befallen Pavel Romanovich demands some reaction from the surrounding world, dissolution, eclipse. But I had the impression that it was late in the evening, though actually it was only 3 p.m., and I was still supposed to travel to the other end of Berlin on an errand my charming brother could have just as well done himself. Pavel Romanovich spoke again this time in sibilant tones. That stinking old bitch, he said. She and she alone pimped them together. I always found her disgusting and didn't conceal it from Lenoshka. What a bitch. You've seen her, I think. Around 60, hair dyed a rich roan, fat. So fat that she looks round-backed. It's a big pity that Nicholas is out. Let him call me as soon as he returns. I am, as you know, a simple, plain-spoken man, and I've been telling Lenoshka for ages that her mother was an evil bitch. Now here's what I have in mind. Perhaps your brother might help me to rig up a letter to the old hag, a sort of formal statement explaining that I know and realize perfectly well whose instigation it was, who nudged my wife. Yes, something on those lines, but most politely worded, of course. I said nothing. Here he was, for the first time visiting me. His visits to Nick didn't count. For the first time, he sat on my couch and shed cigarette ashes on my polychrome cushions. Yet the event, which would once have given me divine pleasure, now did not gladden me one bit. Good people had been reporting for a long while that his marriage was a flop, that his wife had turned out to be a cheat skittish fool, and far-sighted rumor had long been giving her lover in the very person of the freak who had now fallen for her cowish beauty. The news of that wrecked marriage did not therefore come to me as a surprise. In fact, I may have vaguely expected that someday Pavel Romanovich would be deposited at my feet by a wave of the storm. But no matter how deep I rummaged within myself, I failed to find one crumb of joy. On the contrary, my heart was oh so heavy. I simply cannot say how heavy. All my romances, by some kind of collusion between their heroes, have invariably followed a prearranged pattern of mediocrity and tragedy or more precisely, the tragic slant has been imposed by their very mediocrity. I'm ashamed to recall the way they started, and appalled by the nastiness of their denouement, while the middle part, the part that should have been the essence and core of this or that affair, has remained in my mind as a kind of listless shuffle, 
seen through oozy water or sticky fog. My infatuation with Pavel Romanovich had had at least the delightful advantage of staying cool and lovely in contrast to all the rest. But that infatuation too, so remote, so deeply buried in the past, was borrowing now from the present, in reverse order, a tinge of misfortune, failure, even plain mortification, just because I was forced to hear this man complaining of his wife, of his mother-in-law. I do hope Nikki comes back soon, he said. I have still another plan in reserve, and I think it's quite a good one. And in the meantime, I'd better toddle along. And still, I said nothing. In great sadness, looking at him, my lips masked by the fringe of my black shawl. He stood for a moment by the window pane, on which, in tumbling motion, knocking and buzzing, a fly went up, up, and presently slid down again. Then he passed his finger across the spines of the books on my shelf. Like most people who read little, he had a sneaking affection for dictionaries, and now he pulled out a thick-bottomed pink volume with the seed head of a dandelion and a red-curled girl on the cover. Koroshaya, a good stoka, he said, crammed back the stoka, thing, and suddenly broke into tears. I made him sit down close to me on the couch. He swayed to one side, his sobs increasing, and ended by burying his face in my lap. I stroked lightly his hot, emery papery scalp and rosy, robust nape, which I find so attractive in males. Gradually, his spasms abated. He bit me softly through my skirt and sat up. Know what? said Pavel Romanovich. And while speaking, he sonorously clacked together the concave palms of his horizontally placed hands. I could not help smiling as I remembered an uncle of mine, a Volgan landowner, who used to render that way the sound of a procession of dignified cows letting their pies plop. Know what, my dear? Let's move to my flat. I can't stand the thought of being there alone. We'll have supper there, take a few swigs of vodka, then go to the movies. What do you say? I couldn't decline his offer, though I knew that I would regret it. By telephoning to cancel my visit to Nick's former place of employment, he needed the rubber overshoes he had left there. I saw myself in the looking glass of the hallway, and I resembled a forlorn little nun with a stern, waxy face. But a minute later, as I was in the act of pretting up and putting on my hat, I plunged, as it were, into the depth of my great black experienced eyes and found therein a gleam of something far from nunnish. Even through my wallet they blazed. Good God, how they blazed. In the tram on the way to his place, Pavel Romanovich became distant and gloomy again. I was telling him about Nick's new job in the ecclesiastical library, but his gaze kept shifting. He was obviously not listening. We arrived. The disorder in the three smallish rooms that he had occupied with his Lenoshka was simply incredible. 
as if his and her things had had a thorough fight. In order to amuse Pavel Romanovich, I started to play the soubrette. I put on a diminutive apron that had been forgotten in a corner of the kitchen. I introduced peace into the disarray of the furniture. I laid the table most neatly with the result that Pavel Romanovich slapped his hands together once more and decided to make some borscht. He was quite proud of his cooking abilities. After two or three ponies of vodka, his mood became inordinately energetic and pseudo-efficient, as if there really existed a certain project that had to be attended to now. I'm at a loss to decide whether he had got self-infected by the theatrical solemnity with which a stalwart expert in drinking is able to decorate the intake of Russian liquor, or whether he really believed that he and I had begun when still in my room, to plan and discuss something or other. But there he was, filling his fountain pen and with a significant air bringing out what he called the dossier. Letters from his wife received last spring in Bremen, where he had gone on behalf of the emigre insurance company he works for. From these letters, he began to cite passages proving she loved him and not the other chap. In between, he kept repeating brisk little formulas, such as, that's that, okie dokie, let's see now, and went on drinking. His argument reduced itself to the idea that if Lenoshka wrote, I caress you mentally, Babunovich dear, she could not be in love with another man. And if she thought she was, her error should be patiently explained to her. After a few more drinks, his manner changed. His expression grew somber and coarse. For no reason at all, he took off his shoes and his socks and then started to sob and walked sobbing from one end of his flat to the other, totally ignoring my presence and ferociously kicking aside with a strong bare foot the chair into which he kept barging. En passant, he managed to finish the decanter and presently entered the third phase, the final part of that drunken syllogism that had already combined, in keeping with strict dialectical rules, an initial show of bright efficiency and a central period of utter gloom. At the present stage, it appeared that he and I had established something, what exactly remained rather blurry, that proved her lover was the lowest of villains, and the plan consisted of my going to see her on my own initiative, as it were, to warn her. It was also to be understood that Pavel Romanovich remained absolutely opposed to any intrusion or pressure, and that his own suggestions bore the stamp of angelic disinterestedness. Before I could disentangle my wits, Already tightly enveloped in the web of his thick whisper, he was hastily putting on his shoes, and I found myself getting his wife on the phone. And only when I heard her high, stupidly resonant voice did I suddenly realize that I was drunk and behaving like an idiot. I slammed down the receiver, but he started to kiss my cold hands, which I kept clenching, and I called her again, was identified without enthusiasm 
said I had to see her on a piece of urgent business, and after some slight hesitation, she agreed to have me come over at once. By that time, that is, by the time Pavel Romanovich and I had started to go, our plan somehow had ripened in every detail and was amazingly simple. I was to tell Lenoshka that Pavel Romanovich wanted to convey to her something of exceptional importance, in no way, in no way whatever, related to their broken marriage. This he forcefully stressed with a tactician's special appetite, and that he would be waiting for her in the bar just across her street. It took me ages, dim ages, to climb the staircase. And I was terribly tormented by the thought that at our last meeting, I wore the same hat and the same black fox. Lenoshka, on the other hand, came out to me smartly dressed. Her hair seemed to have just been curled, but curled badly. And in general, she had grown plainer. About her chic painted mouth, there were puffy little pouches, so that all that chic was rather lost. I don't believe for one minute, she said, surveying me with curiosity, that it is all that important. But if he thinks we haven't done arguing, fine, I agree to come. But I want it to be before witnesses. I'm scared to remain alone with him. I've had enough of that, thank you very much. When we entered the pub, Pavel Romanovich sat leaning on his elbow at a table next to the bar. He rubbed with his minimus his red naked eyes while imparting at length in a monotone some slice of life, as you like to put it, to a total stranger seated at the same table. A German, enormously tall, with sleekly parted hair, but a black downed nape and badly bitten fingernails. However, Pavel Romanovich was saying in Russian, my father did not wish to get into trouble with the authorities and therefore decided to build a fence around it. Very good, that was settled. Our house was about as far from theirs as... He looked around, nodded absent-mindedly to his wife, and continued in a perfectly relaxed manner, as far as from here to the tramway, so they could not have any claims. But you must agree that spending the entire autumn in Vilna without electricity is no joking matter. Well then, most reluctantly, I found it impossible to understand what he was talking about. The German listened dutifully with half-open mouth. His knowledge of Russian was scanty. The sheer process of trying to understand afforded him pleasure. Lenoshka, who was sitting so close to me that I sensed her disagreeable warmth, began to rummage in her bag. My father's illness, Pavel Romanovich went on, contributed to his decision. If you really live there, as you say, then you remember, of course, that street. It's dark there by night, and not infrequently one happens to read. Pavlik, said Lenoshka, here's your pince I took it away in my bag by mistake. It's dark there by night, repeated Pavel Romanovich, opening as he spoke the spectacle case that she had tossed to him across the table. 
He put on the eyeglasses, produced a revolver, and started to shoot at his wife. With a great howl, she fell under the table, dragging me after her. The German stumbled over us and joined us in our fall, so that three of us sort of got mixed up on the floor. But I had time to see a waiter rush up to the aggressor from behind and with monstrous relish and force hit him on the head with an iron ashtray. After this, there was, as usual in such cases, the slow tidying up of the shattered world with the participation of gapers, policemen, ambulancers. Extravagantly groaning Lenoshka, a bullet had merely gone through her fat, sun-tanned shoulder, was driven away to the hospital, but I did not see them lead Pavel Romanovich away. By the time everything was over, that is, by the time everything had reoccupied its right place, street lamps, houses, stars, I found I was walking on a deserted sidewalk in the company of our German survivor. That huge, handsome man, hatless, in a voluminous raincoat, floated beside me. And at first I thought he was seeing me home, but then it dawned upon me that we were heading for his place. We stopped in front of his house, and he explained to me, slowly, weightily, but not without a certain shade of poetry, and for some reason in bad French, that he could not take me up to his room, because he lived with a chum who replaced for him a father, a brother, and a wife. His excuses struck me as so insulting that I ordered him to call a taxi at once and take me to my lodgings. He smiled a frightened smile and closed the door in my face. And there I was, walking along a street which, despite the rains having stopped hours ago, was still wet and conveyed an air of deep humiliation. Yes, there I was, walking all alone, as was my due to walk from the beginning of time. And before my eyes, Pavel Romanovich kept rising rising and rubbing off the blood and the ash from his poor head. That was Jonas Hassan Kamiri reading A Slice of Life by Vladimir Nabokov, translated from the Russian by Dmitry Nabokov in collaboration with the author. The story was published in The New Yorker in April of 1976 and was included in The Stories of Vladimir Nabokov, which was published by Knopf in 1995. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. 
You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jonas, in general, the setting of this story is pretty sordid, right? These characters are living in straightened circumstances. They're not all particularly sympathetic. Um, the outlook is kind of nihilistic. You know, as you were saying, it's everything has an undertone of loss to it. What do you think drew Nabokov to writing about this setting? I have no idea. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. I I know that one of the reasons why I sh- chose it was I was captivated by the opening. I became intrigued by the question of like, why would someone hate the fact that another person is laughing? You know, that opening mm-hmm. where Maria kind of mm-hmm. notices that Pavel Romanovich is like roaring with laughter. I mean, there's, of course, like an internal friction also going on within the sentence on the sentence level. So he's roaring with laughter as he's relating uh, the fact that his wife has left him. Um, and that was the thing that sucked me into um, mm-hmm. the short story as a reader. Maybe Nabokov wrote it because he wanted to get to know Maria in a similar way that we want to as readers. It feels like he's caring more and more for her, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that there is a moment in the beginning of the story, and of course this is Nabokov's everything, I think it's is planned, but there is this moment in the beginning of the story when we, she's she's in her room and she hears this person who she has been in love with roaring with laughter and she exits her room and, and um, she has that moment, you know, when she says, and without even consulting my mirror, just as I was. Mm-hmm. And I remember the reading that going, really? <laughs> <laughs> Really? I, I mean, whenever someone says what they don't do, mm-hmm. that's an interesting moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like heading here to the studio earlier today, I I didn't shoplift anything. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't. There was not one kid that I hit in the face. She tells us what she doesn't do, and then she describes herself with this kind of visual, yeah, visual, yeah. this acidic gaze. I mean, she uses it towards herself. I think that's one of the more um, aspects that makes her more <laughs> sympathetic. That is not only the way that she sees the outside world, she's also yeah. so harsh against herself. Yeah. So maybe that's why he wrote it, to get to know her. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, as far as I know, it's the only first-person narrative he wrote from the point of view of a woman. So it's interesting to me to think, why this woman? And why did he never do it again after doing this one? Yeah. I mean, if we think about her... I'm fascinated by the way that she uses French throughout the narrative. So my idea is that she's had this life put on pause in a way. We know that she's lost a number of things. We're not really sure what it is, but um, she's had this immigrant life in Berlin for the last two years. And then she seems to be a person who reads. There is this funny line when Pavel Romanovich looks at her um, uh, bookshelf, you know, where she says kind of, something a little bit condescending about people who don't read. And, you know, like many, he was fascinated by uh, dictionaries. So she seems like she makes an effort to make herself not the norm. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of energy goes into her saying, I'm not like the other people here. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a very, very dark story as well. Like, there are almost no colors. She wears black. She's in mourning. Yeah. Um, I noticed the fact that the, the cushions are polychrome, mm-hmm. but we don't get the... the not which colors. Not <laughs> which colors, but it, they're just polychrome. And, it, of course, one way of reading it could be that it's a reflection of how she feels. Yeah, that even when it's three in the afternoon, she feels like it's late at night. Yes. Everything yeah. is, is lightless. Yeah. There's this darkness in the heavens. And then there's this beautiful moment when she sees in her own black eyes, like, um, you know, when she says about Life. her own eyes, yes, yeah. like, my God, how they blaze. Like there's <laughs> some, inside that blackness, she sees the light. Right? I guess that light can be interpreted as, you know, one day this will change. Mm-hmm. One day something will be different. Um, one day I will not be involved in a number of weird relationships with men who keep using me for things. And that seems to be happening even in this short story. Like her her brother has this like, mission for her that she should go and get his rubber shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's her mission for the day. And then she kind of canceled that. And I think there is a moment when she actually thinks that maybe it's time for me and Pavel now. And then that doesn't happen, of course. Yeah, it's very interesting because she does say that she used to be infatuated with him. She used to be in love with him. She's not anymore. And then there's just a constant tension between what she's saying and what she's doing, which is inviting him into her room, cuddling up next to him on the couch, stroking his head in her lap, flirting with him. Yeah. In a way, he doesn't actually seem to notice. But... um, she has very conflicted feelings, I suppose. Yeah. We, as readers, have a hard time understanding if, because she describes him in such, like, with all these negative terms, and then she just, like, can't help herself within parentheses, like, but the teeth, <laughs> the teeth. <laughs> and, um, like, she wants it, but she doesn't want it. I think that's one way of, of also understanding why she she keeps telling us it's a mistake. Yeah. But then yeah. she's there. She puts on the apron. She starts putting up the table. And yeah. as she says, she, she's performing someone. She's not even performing herself. Maybe she's no. trying to be Lenoshka. That's she's always trying a, to be a woman he's attracted to, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Um, that moment when she said, cheek propped feminine thoughts, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which feels like she's dumbing down in order to to be someone who she thinks that he wants. I think that could be one way of understanding her. Yeah, because she seems, you know, intellectually far superior to him. And that may be part of his lack of attraction to her. Yeah. And she's sensitive enough to see that. I mean, it's interesting because I was reading a little bit, you know, people's responses to this story, and it came up for a lot of criticism because the assumption is this woman is low class or whatever she is, and yet she speaks French and she has this amazing vocabulary and so on. Uh, I don't really see that as a flaw. You just assume that she has had different circumstances in the past, but do you see that as a problem in the story? Not at all. Um, it all depends on how much agency we give her, right? Yeah. And I I respect their readings, but my, my reading of this is that she's much more powerful than that. I find also that we start rooting for her despite the fact that she's kind of very rarely gives us a glimpse of who she really is, um, there is that moment towards the end when I th- 
I remember thinking the first time our first read through, he's going to give us a Hollywood ending. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> right. Actually, because there are a number of times when it feels like we know that she will not be happy in Pavel's apartment. There's no way yeah. that that's happening. Yeah. But towards the end, I remember when my first read through, when she is outside of the bar after the shooting, and she just sees this huge German man in a raincoat. And I remember thinking, wow, is this going to be, I mean, had Nabokov given us the Hollywood version there, I think it would have been a sign that he was a young writer. Right. But the interesting thing is that he's mature enough to remind us that this is a slice of life, that these things don't happen. Like, mm -hmm. it's not this beautiful, like, I will not give you that cookie. And I think that's that's a really powerful moment when, when we realize that, um, that the German is, you know, not interested in, in his defense, he's just been shot at. That's also, <laughs> you know, that's something to be remembered. Um, another way of reading it from his perspective, I, I guess, is that this crazy lady who was involved in some kind of shooting now stalks him yeah, to his apartment. Yeah. Um, and and there he tells her that he has a <laughs> a chum inside who's a father, a brother, and a wife. Yeah. A very mysterious comment. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, I don't need anything. I've yes. got it all taken care of upstairs. Yeah. What more could he need? Um, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> um, and in broken French as well. Yeah. I think there's and, something there as well that he does that in the language that she has used throughout the story to kind of, I don't know, to separate herself or to to become special, maybe. Um, yeah, that was sad. Yeah. Why do you think before that she goes along? With, I mean, Pavel has all these plans. He wants to get her brother to write a letter to, with him to the mother-in-law, accusing her. I don't know what good that would do. He wants to have Maria Vasilevna convince his wife that her lover is a villain. And then he concocts this other plan to have her get his wife out the door to come and meet him. Surely she knows these won't end well. None of these plans would end well, either for him or for her. So why do you think she goes along with this? Is it just a little activity on a boring day? Or is it that little blaze of hope in her eyes? I think it's the hope, and I think that one clue could be in this, like, I love that sentence um, in the beginning when she says, his grief had to speak. I think that she has been grieving a lot yeah. without having anyone around. I don't think her grief has had the opportunity to speak. Maybe it's been spoken inside that sad room of hers, but mm -hmm. no one has been listening, not even her brother, I think. Yeah. So I think one way of understanding it is that she knows how painful it is to be grieving by yourself. So she won't let that happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, like the hope that this time it might be different, that could be a thing as well. But there, there's something about like how the interaction between Maria and Pavel. Like, I wonder if there's something also in Pavel's mind when he sees Maria that he kind of feels like, is this where I will end up? Is this the end point, kind of? Um, so maybe they awaken something that they're not aware of before. Um, I became curious also if Pavel knows that she has been infatuated with him. Mm -hmm. We know that he's never been there to see her. And she says, like, he's been here a number of times, but that was for my brother, so that doesn't count. Right. I was 
curious about that reference when she says that she's in mourning for the fetuses that have yeah. been scraped out of her. The first time I read that, I thought, is that linked in some way to Pavel? To yeah. um, but I don't, I don't think this... Doesn't seem so. No. The story doesn't even hint at that. He seems completely oblivious of her. I mean, she she's a tool for him, a, yes. a tool for getting his wife out of the house or, you know, finding some satisfaction in his situation. But yeah. yeah. She's not there as herself. Yeah. I loved when he took off his shoes. <laughs> that's, that, that's one of those, like, you know, like the kind of weird, unexpected detail that makes a story sing. Why does he take off his shoes? And then he walks around the flat and keeps walking into the same chair again and again and again. And kicks it, yeah. And I think that that's a beautiful aspect of the story, how he manages to capture grief. There are so many reasons why it's hard to feel for Pavel, including the fact that he shoots his ex-wife. But there's this moment when he sits down, he's grieving, and he takes out the letters. And he tries to make sense of this breakup almost like he's solving an equation. Mm -hmm. This can't be happening because at some point she has loved me. Yeah. I mean, we've all been through breakups, and, and that thing, I think, is so universal. In Stockholm, many years ago, I had a friend who went through like a, one of those breakups, like no one expected it. And he had yeah. kind of, <laughs> he had bought like a f particular kind of luxurious fish for the evening that he was going to prepare for her. And all of a sudden, they, she just broke up with him. So we're sitting in this park and he has this fish with him, <laughs> you know, which it makes things always worse when you're just carrying a really expensive fish that is about to... <laughs> I, I mean, it it's already happens. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. And it's just dead already, but he's not... I don't know. I just remember him trying to go through the re relationship, you know, going through text messages, going through letters, and basically saying she doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah. Because back in April, she wrote this. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, she said that she doesn't know what she's doing. We have to make a plan, <laughs> Paul yeah. would have said. And all the time, the fish was there kind of nodding its head, you know. Yeah. But there was something about how we try to turn a crashed relationship into an equation because it gives it structure. Right. We can solve it in a way. Ooh, we can say what's happening now is not the correct answer. It doesn't compute. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we can prove it. Yes. It's wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's his, I guess that's his ambition. That's just yeah. one of the things that he's trying to do with these letters. Yeah. I mean, it, that scene in Pavel's apartment, it's both grief-stricken and funny mm -hmm. because he's just drunk, you know, three glasses of vodka and he's walking around in bare feet, kicking the furniture. And then we get the scene in the bar, which is really almost slapstick. I mean, it's this is called a slice of life, but it's not real life. This is a comes a kind of cartoon at the end. You know, the waiter coming up behind him and hitting him on the head with the ashtray. Um, and it's just interesting to me to see how Nabokov weaves the comedy and tragedy together, makes us laugh at these characters and feel for them at the same yeah. time. I, I don't know how hard that must be to do as a writer. Yeah. I mean, he's a master yeah. at, at that. Um, I thought the ashtray was fascinating as well. <laughs> like, why this heavy ashtray? And then towards the end, when Pavel all of a sudden kind of rises up in front of Maria and, and he has ash and blood on his head, he wipes off the ash, wipes off yeah. the blood. And all of a sudden, I 
started thinking of ash in kind of religious terms. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there are a number of kind of hints throughout the story that we could make a kind of religious reading of it, like Marie has references to not being nunnish or Plekhanov, who has this like a God-fearing widow. And also when, when Pavel says, I had faith in her, like I actually had faith in her, it could lend itself to a re- religious reading. And then the ash... I and mean, he's, he's rising from the dead with the yeah, he's ready the ashes. For, and maybe yeah. like in that, like an ash as a symbol of guilt that mm-hmm. he's kind of wiping it off. It wasn't my fault. Yeah, you know that could be one way of interpreting that. However, he was carrying a gun. <laughs> <laughs> the gun didn't find its own way into his pocket. Yes. That's so at true. some point he planned this. Yes, he had a. In his words, an amazing plan for how to solve this. Um, and he did not let Maria in on that plan. Yeah. And there you go. She has a, a name with Christian resonance as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not to defend him. It's a terrible thing that he does, but I, there's something in the story that makes me think that he's not sure that he will do it until it actually happens. Early on in the story, we hear that uh, she has taken his um, glasses, his favorite glasses, Mm -hmm. and then she returns them in the bar. And she doesn't give them. She kind of tosses them to him. And he brings out the glasses, puts them on, and then he shoots at her, it says in the text. I don't know if this would have happened unless, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe that's pushing it too far, but there's... Where you think that act of tossing the glasses was like her final rejection, and that's what sets him off. Maybe he looked into his eyes and saw some hope as well. Mm -hmm. And then she arrives, and she tosses the glasses, and she she realized that this is actually over. The equation that I've prepared will not solve itself. No matter how many letters I will bring out, I will not be able to convince her to come back. You know, this is not, of course, like I'm not blaming Paul Lenoshka at all, but it's just... An interesting way to kind of to see if we can lend some of the um, empathy that Nabokov lends to his characters as readers. One thing that this might also be a little bit of a stretch, but I, I was fascinated with the animals in the story. Mm-hmm. So first we have this reference to this poor old dog that has been um, shut into the room of the brother. Right. Um, and then the second animal is this fly that is kind of Buzzing and buzzing on the, yeah, window. On the yeah. window and can't get out. So we have a kind of one dog that is not in its right place and kind of locked, like mm-hmm. lacking freedom. Shut in, yeah. yeah. And then we have the fly that is trying to get out but can't. And then I thought to myself, oh, well, that could be one way of illustrating, you know, their predicament. Their, yeah. I mean, they are in a peculiar situation where they where I think time passes really slowly, and that seems to be happening when we're not sure of where we're heading in life. So I thought to myself, oh, it would be beautiful if I could find a third animal that was free. And that (laughs) would be, I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch maybe, but then there's a reference to the cows. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of procession of happy cows. I mean, if we follow this chain of thought, (laughs) the fly is caught, the dog is caught, but the cows are in the right place. They haven't been displaced. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. that could be a way of, of understanding also this ending where we kind of, um, after the chaos in the bar, there is this mentioning of kind of everything 
being um, everything was over. That is, by the time everything had reoccupied its right place, street lamps, houses, stars. I think one way of understanding these characters is, is also that they have been displaced, mm -hmm. that they are not where they feel like they should be. Yeah. So you were you were saying how much the story is about loss and grieving and so on. At the same time, it's comic. How do you think he infuses that sense into the writing? I think that one of the kind of easiest ways to make a reader care for someone is to tell uh, them about what a character has lost. And here it's very clear that they've all lost a number of different things. Maybe I'm seeing that more clearly because I'm in my creative practice, in my novels, I think that that thing of like how we, um, if it's possible to write about loss in an interesting way, has been something that has occupied me for 20 mm -hmm. years, kind of. Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated with this aspect of writing where we kind of can use our words to replace something that has been lost. And that seems to be one recurring theme in Nabokov's writing, but also here as well. If we've lost someone through a separation or through death or through just a slice of life, you know, people come into our lives and we kind of lose them. Is it at all possible to replace them by writing about them, by um, imagining their lives? And I see something very similar going on here. So interestingly, what, what they've all lost is Russia. And it's not discussed at all. I mean, there are no memories memories from home. There's no vision of home or of, of what they've left behind. Yeah. They're very much forced to move forward into this life. Yeah. Maybe certain things are too painful to remember. I mean, it seems like one of the memories come up almost by chance when Pavel makes the sound of the horizontal, oh, you yeah. know, yeah. and all of a sudden the sound of the horizontal hands when they're beating again, and he has this idea that they should move in together, conjures up a memory in Maria of this Volgan landowner who has cows. But that memory seems to be almost, is almost as if she doesn't want to remember that. Um, and I think that that is within parentheses as well. And also the fascination with war, it keeps coming up the image of war, right? That, yeah. that he, he would fit better in kind of a war tunic than... Um, um, right. You know, he rather should, than a double-breasted jacket. It look better in a military uniform, yeah. Yeah, it hints at the reason why they're there as well. Right. Um, I mean, they are in exile from revolution. Yeah. Um, and the war is always kind of hinted at, but not explicitly, right? There's a lamp of hers that is like a, it's a veritable bomb of thick glass filled with water. There is mm -hmm. this... There are a number of military terms yeah. throughout the story that fascinate me. So I think that could also be a way of understanding how a text is charged with meaning, you know, that we kind of we can actually remove the things that are too painful to mm -hmm. to put on the page. But in a good writer's work like in this one, it seems to be around even though it's not always explicit. Yeah, and that the story doesn't give us much of the past. It gives us nothing of the future. Mm. We don't know what the plan is or where they go from here. Yeah. Yeah. I I have hopes for Maria. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Oh, you have some hope well. blazing in your eyes. <laughs> I have some hope. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. 
I know <laughs> she will find the one. I mean, tomorrow morning she would just walk out into the street and find someone who is like the opposite of Pavel Romanovich. <laughs> and she will fall instantly. Yes. Yes. And she will start wearing colors. I yes. Think that would be a thing. She will come out of mourning. Yes. No more mourning and kind of walk off into the sunset with this huge headed man. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jonas. Thank you. Vladimir Nabokov, who died in 1977, moved from Russia to Germany to France before settling in the U.S. in 1940, and then in Switzerland in the early 60s. A seven-time finalist for the National Book Award, he was the author of some 17 novels, nine of which were written in Russian. His novels written in English include Ben Sinister, Lolita, and Pale Fire. Jonas Hassan Kamiri, a Swedish playwright and fiction writer, is the author of five novels, including Montecore, The Silence of the Tiger, Everything I Don't Remember, a winner of the August Prize in 2015, and The Family Clause, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2020. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.